Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at zencare.org. So in, uh, I'm, I'm part of a Soto Zen temple, and one of the phrases I learned very early in my practice was um, switching heads and changing faces. Does anybody here know that phrase? It means, you know, putting down one part of yourself and picking up another. You walk from one room to the next. You're with another person. You've switched heads. You've become, in a room where your mother is, you're one person. In a room where your boss is, you're another person. So I, I carry that phrase with me a lot, switching heads and changing faces, because my life is divided into several somewhat distinct parts. But the thing about this book and this topic is I get to wear all my heads at the same time. So I just so you know who I am. I, I'm a writer by vocation and, and passion for many years. This is my ninth book. Um, I am a mother and a grandmother. I'm the senior lay teacher in my sangha. I'm the godo, which is head of teaching. And I'm also a palliative care nurse and an end-of-life educator. So I tend to put one head down and put another head on. I go to work and I switch. And But when it came to writing this book, I was able to bring all of those people into the room at the same time. And that was really, that was sweet. That was really nice. Um, so they're all sitting here with me right now. And you'll see me switching a little bit. Um, but, and it's not a, it's not a taste show, so please feel free to relax, turn around, face me, you know, let, let yourself, let your hair down a little bit. Um, we, we divide between Dharma talks and taste shows, which are much more formal, and some of you look a little like you're expecting that, don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to do a few exercises together, and I wanted to start with a, a brief visualization. Feel free to close your eyes and just think about the ideal way you will die. I want you to think about where you are, who is there, what's the temperature? Are you inside or outside? What do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? really develop that picture a little bit for a minute. <clears throat> okay, so just hold on to that. We're going to come back to that a little bit. Keep it in mind. So this, this book came out of workshops that I write, uh, uh, that I lead, starting with my sangha, but also with, with people outside the sangha, about preparing for death. And I did this for a few years and realized that people were coming with the same questions and the same fears and the same concerns, whether whatever their 
their um, background was, people who were taking care of an aged parent, people who had their own serious diagnosis, people who'd lost a partner. Um, it didn't really matter. And age didn't seem to matter and gender didn't seem to matter. There were some fundamental fears and concerns that people had around looking at death. Um, not just our own death, but the death of people that are close to us. So um, I realized that to some extent I was drawn to this work. I had been drawn to doing this kind of education because I hadn't quite looked at all those things in, you know, through and through. Um, there was a set, there was a point a couple years ago where I really realized I'm still afraid. I still have some denial, some resistance here. What's it about? What's that fundamental human resistance about? Um, not in a philosophical sense and not in a psychological sense. Um, I, you know, Zen is the lens through which I see the world. So I approach everything from that larger gestalt. Psychology is part of it. A point of view is part of it. Culture is part of it. But what is it in our human form, in our embodied humanity, that holds on so tightly. Um, and it would seem like, and I've had people say, it doesn't seem like, somebody said to me just yesterday, I didn't think you were afraid of anything. Which is just, I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Let's make a list <laughs> of the things I'm afraid of, going to the dentist, airplane turbulence. I mean, I could just start the list. But of course I'm afraid of things, we all are. Um, but I had early experiences with death. I, um, I had early experiences with the loss of family members, but I also um, I worked with, started working with cadavers, for instance, when I was 17. And I talk about that a little bit in the book about being sort of too young to know better, too young to know that this is something I shouldn't want to do. But, um, in being in the presence of the dead from a young age. And my first real job, so to speak, was as a nurse's aide in a nursing home. Again, too young to know I wasn't supposed to like it. So I liked it. I really liked it. Um, and I went to nursing school and was immediately put into this, into this world. But that doesn't mean I knew what I was doing. You know, nursing school taught me to do a lot of skills. Are there any nurses in the room? Um, you know, I learned how to put in a catheter and I learned how to calculate drug dosages, but I was not taught a thing about how to take care of a dying person or a dead body. So in my first job, I distinctly remember, for one thing, you're handed this enormous amount of work and you have to learn how to do it. So it's head down and go forward. And I remember a day when a woman died, a, very frail woman, she hadn't spoken a long time. She was in the end stages of dementia. We knew she was dying. The aide comes and tells me, oh, I think she's gone. And I sort of brusquely said, okay, go get her ready. You know, I'll call the family, I'll call the doctor. I'll be in to help you. And eventually I got in there and I helped her and we finished preparing the body. And she quit. She walked out of that room and she quit. And I never saw her again. And I thought, oh my God, what a chance I had missed. I had not understood at all how overwhelming this was to her. Um, and then many years later, I had this kind of end, these end pieces for being a nurse around the dying. 
Many years later, I was working on an oncology floor. Again, we expected people to die sometimes. It wasn't always a surprise. Sometimes it was. Um, and my supervisor at one point said, I think that when someone dies that you're really close to, you should wear a, a, an armband or put a marker on your uniform or something so that we know you're working through the grief of losing a patient you've gotten really close to. Can you guess how many of us thought that was a good idea? You know, ah, are you kidding? We're tougher than that. We can, we can take it, you know. And I think about these two experiences, and, and I really want to remember that being familiar with death is not the same as being at ease with it. Being, um, knowing what to do is not the same as being comfortable. Um, there is a way that those of us who are around the dying and the dead can become familiar without really letting it in. So how many people here are caregivers, either volunteers, ministers, bedside caregivers, sit with the dying at times? Okay. So I don't know if this rings true for you, but there's a, there's a, a point where you know what to do. You come to the door of the room. You know how to enter the room. You know how to be at the bedside. But there's a way that you're not entirely letting it in. And I think the reason we're not entirely letting it in is because we haven't done our own work completely yet. Do we ever do our own work completely? Not, not ever completely. We're always unfolding. But there's work that we, as the bedside people, need to do as well. And there's work that all of us as practitioners on the cushion need to do every day for this. So. I have a lot of experience with this, and I have a lot of things I want to say to you, but I'm also a beginner here. I'm also learning every day and confronting it every day um, along with you. We do this together. We really do this together. So we start with really getting in touch with our own denial. and. And part of that is admitting that this is really an extraordinary thing we do, isn't it? <laughs> Are you used to it? I, if I let myself stop and think what it is I'm doing when I come to the bedside of a dying person, it takes my breath away. It is extraordinary. Um, I want to retain that sense of how profound this moment is. And let go of that tough person who says, I don't need an armband. I'm, I'm never that disturbed by this or overwhelmed by it. Of course we are. Of course we are. Um, and there's no weakness there. So we want to be familiar and always holding that question. To do this, we really have to touch we really have to touch our own deaths. And that's why I wanted to start with this, this ideal death, and we will come back to it. Um, there's a chapter in the book called A Good Death, because that's a question I hear a lot. Um, I want a good death. What is a good death? I, my mother didn't have a good death. You may not know this, but there's actually a federal government definition of the good death. <laughs> I know, why would we trust them on that one? But. <laughs> 
It all has to do with, you know, Medicare payments for hospice and so on. Um, the, the official government definition of a good death has to do with um, physical comfort, of course. That's always people's number one concern. Um, but also that all that the person's family and caregivers are comfortable. And I find that very intriguing that in a way they have anything to say about it at all. <laughs> um, that our concern about a good death includes the people who aren't dying. Um, but it also has to do with the institution that is providing the care is at ease with the death. And that's a really tricky one. That is saying that a death needs to be curated on some level. A death needs to look like a certain thing for us to call it a good death. So in the book, I tell some stories about deaths that may not seem like good deaths at first, um, but there's a way to see this in a much broader way. So as we think about our, our ideal death, our own good death, um, I want that to expand for myself as for others. Um, we can talk about an appropriate death based on a person's life. That's one way that it can be a good death. But there's also a good death is the one that we're willing to face. And if we are tightly held to a certain idea of what a death will look like for ourselves or another, then when the actual real thing comes along, we're not entirely there. We're not entirely present for it. So the death may not look the way we think it will look. Um, but is there a way that that can also be as big and as whole as the one we imagine. So since a lot of you are caregivers, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, our agendas. Um, so read just a little bit here. Um, I know it sounds a little odd, but I had fun writing this. <laughs> because I had a chance to I had a chance to pull together all the things you're not supposed to say. Um, and I invited people who'd been around dying people to tell me some of the things they'd heard that they wished somebody hadn't said. Um, so I collected quite a few. I'm going to jump around just a little bit. Don't say, stop, you're making me sad. Don't be so negative. Don't say, our neighbor's daughter had this and she's fine now. We indulge in denial and we fight the denial of others. Why isn't Uncle Phil realistic? One way to cope is get busy, plunge into the truth. That's one of our agenda items as a caregiver. Face the facts. We want to get palliative care started. We want to help our loved one avoid unnecessary procedures. We want to save money. We want the plans to get made so our own suffering can end. Don't say, face the music. My mother had this and she was dead in three months. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> but you may feel such a need to cover up the truth, but you can't talk about it. As I felt with my mother, I felt such a need to talk about the elephant in the room 
that I undermined her sense of safety. Your unfinished business is no one's problem but your own. A person may say something that sounds completely hopeless. There's no point. It's no good. This won't work. And you may feel the urge to encourage them. But a person may just be trying out the possibility, and at some point it will be true. Nothing will work. A person may say things that sound ridiculously optimistic. I'll be skiing in Aspen by Christmas. It's not helpful to say you're going to be fine. How many of you have been at a bedside with a family member who was doing that, who was stroking and saying, it's going to be okay. When my mother was dying, my father stood over her bed and said, don't go. You can't go. You haven't told me what color to paint the bedroom. I'm going to paint the bedroom. Don't go. Um, don't make promises. And I go into some detail about don't make promises if you're the caregiver. Don't say you can do something that you can't do. But whatever you say you're going to do, you damn well better do it. So don't make promises and don't tell lies. How many of you have been a gatekeeper, gone to a doctor's office, gone to an appointment with somebody, taken notes, and so on? So then you may be, you're the witness. You may need to block the door until you get answers. But don't say, be nice to the doctor. Oh, I hate that one. Say, doctor, please explain that in lay terms. Please explain that again. Doctor, I think you said, can you tell me again? My mother was one of those, oh, be nice to the doctor. Don't offer advice unless you are clearly asked for it. And if you are asked for advice, give it openly and leave room for differences. Please don't say, practice gratitude. <laughs> oh. <laughs> there are bookstores I can't even go in. <laughs> don't say, and don't Kubler-Ross a person. How many of you have heard this? I see you're in the bargaining stage. Oh, I know, you've never, I, yeah, it happens. Don't say, I'll pray for you. Probably no one in this room says, I'll pray for you, but you may say something on the line. Don't say, this is a blessing in disguise. Oh, this is an opportunity. Don't ever say, I'm sure God has a plan. I work for a Catholic health system, um, which for the most part is fine. But every once in a while, you'll come across somebody who just, one of the chaplains, they just can't help themselves. <laughs> I'm sure God has a plan. He won't give you more than you can carry. Don't say, if I were you. Because your friend wishes it was you. <laughs> no, they do. You can help with practical details, help with planning, but only when and if the person agrees to the help. You offer and then you shut up. Notice if you're inserting yourself into the situation. I said I wanted to talk a little bit about our agendas. These are our agendas. 
How do we insert ourselves into the death? How do we become less than a, a witness? Does your mouth ever start to form the words, I think you should? Or why don't you? Have you considered? We have words that our urges to fix, to rescue, deny, demand, direct, avoid, confront. We all have an urge in these ways. So we notice the words. We have a good practice for this. You hear the words, you let them go. Notice your own bias. Notice if you think you don't have a bias. Start with that. You have a bias. Um, you have the words, why, should you, why don't you, and I think you should, in your head. We just don't want to actually say. <coughs> Here's some things not to say. Honest, I swear to God, I've heard all these. You should quit eating sugar. <laughs> you should read this great book about mindfulness and cancer. Ugh. Dying is very intimate, but don't take things too personally. We do, we take it personally. As caregivers, we think we should be liked. We think we should be wanted. We think we should be making a difference. Maybe we're not. Respect privacy. Don't presume you have the right to know anything, to see anything, to have a single question answered. That's part of our bias too. I'm at the bedside, so I'm somehow inside this, and I get to know. I want to know. I want my curiosity satisfied. Don't say, tell me all about it. Now that's a tricky one because we want to offer a listening ear. But there's a way to say, do you, do you understand the, the structure there? Tell me all about it. That's a command. Tell me all about it. Can we say, would you like to talk? And it's okay if you don't want to. And really mean that. These people are sick. They're losing their autonomy. And when you're taking off your clothes for doctors and nurses and getting scanned and cast and poked, you feel more reserved than usual. Not less, more. People see that their modesty will be annihilated by this illness. Annihilated. They may not want to tell you the latest lab results or let you help them to the bathroom. So talk about something else. Don't predict how long a person will live. I am often asked to do that. Um, and I'm very careful not to do that unless it's abundantly clear. Don't say, are you sure that doctor knows what he's talking about? Have you gotten a second opinion? Don't say, why don't you try harder? Don't you love me enough to try harder? Don't say, never say, help me get through this. The dying person has no obligation to sort things out for you, to listen to your apologies, to explain his past actions, or to make you feel better. It is not the dying person's job to fix your loss. Don't leave me, you think. How can you? What will I do? Why is this happening? Fix it. 
it's impossible dying. But a dying person truly needs to know that their death will not cause harm. That's what we can give. Your death will not cause harm. It hurts. Of course it hurts. But no one is trying to hurt you. The dying person may be happy one moment and crying the next, more interested in how the Mets are doing than his wound care, and appear more worried about the fate of a television character than his own. A dying person may book a vacation you know they will never take, plant a tree, buy a car, and shave his head. Make room for rage. Make room for clarity and insight and composure and acceptance and throwing a bedpan across the room. Make room for the possibility of changing the course of a life at the last moment. Make room for a person to transform. They are working it out, and you should be too. So that's a little, that's some advice for us as caregivers, but also as the loved ones. And I will tell you that as a person who does have a fair amount of experience walking into these rooms, when it's someone I love, I forget all of it. I lose all of that. You know, one of the questions I'm asked a lot by family caregivers, by lay caregivers when I'm the nurse is, I don't, know, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to come into that space. I don't know how to enter that space. And I tell them to do the same thing I do, which is you stop at the doorway. You stop before you go in and you do a little inventory. You figure out where you are. What state of mind are you in? What are you carrying into that room? Is your grief on your face? Is your anxiety for, forward? Know that. It doesn't mean you can't have it. It means that you know you've got it. Um, but when it's someone I love, a very old friend died this spring, um, and I got called late at night by his wife. Something's wrong. Can you come over? It was three days before he died. <clears throat> and he was in a pain crisis. So one of the many reasons I don't love official hospice systems because I got there first. <laughs> but um, I stood there at Jamie's bedside and I was like, my mind was kind of a blank. I was like, oh, oh wait a minute, I do know what to do. I know how to do this. I do this every day. But somehow I had to start from scratch because I had switched heads and I was just Jamie's friend. Um, and all of my emotion was forward. So I had to make the effort to actually set that aside so that I could be a help. We need to know that going in the room that sometimes we're carrying a lot when we come in. Right? Please, um, please speak up if you have any questions. So raise your hands. We can be very casual. So. Zen, we're all Zen practitioners here, right? That's most of us anyway. How many of you have heard the phrase, if you die once, you never need to die again? Is that a familiar? This doesn't come up. Um, <laughs> anyway, there's various versions of this throughout our literature, but, you know, oh, monks, if you die once, you will never die again. And it has to do with dropping the self. If you have a really deeply integrated experience of dropping the self and of experiencing 
impermanence and interrelationship, no obstacle in space and time, whatever words you want to use for it. There is a fearlessness that goes all the way down that comes with that. There is a, a settled, confident fearlessness that you can access from then on. It doesn't mean you're never afraid. I mean, when I hear this, it's like yada, yada, yada. Okay, I've got that. I'm still scared. So um, I, wanna, I want to acknowledge that there is, a, there is a fearlessness at the heart of Zen practice that is the best friend you'll ever have. It's real. I can promise if you stick with this, you will touch this. But it doesn't spare us being human. It doesn't take away our karmic patterns. It doesn't take away our reactivity. It doesn't take away all the habits of relationship that we carry around. We still have to work with all of that material. So I'm talking about this human organic resistance. And that's the other thing. We don't always acknowledge that our bodies don't want to die. When I'm in the airplane coming across to you, I had a beautiful flight. It was gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful clouds. I'm enjoying the whole thing until, boom, the bottom falls out, right? And then it's just a whole different experience. My body reacts, and I am in this body. So there's a lot of parts of being human that we, we tend to set aside a little bit, and I want to reclaim that for us as people of practice, not just as caregivers. I'm about to give a Dharma talk at home about, um, I think I'm calling it be a bad student. Um, because I've had, I have a, a, there's a senior in the Sangha who just had a very serious cancer diagnosis and a, a life altering surgery. And she said to me privately, I said, you must be very scared and you must be angry. And um, how are you working with that? And she, she said, oh, I didn't know it was okay to feel those things. You know, she's been practicing for 20 years and it had somehow twisted in her mind to mean that I must have equanimity in all moments and I can't feel these feelings and I can't have these thoughts. So I really wanted to give her permission to be angry, be scared, be sad, cry the tears. Um, so to me, sometimes we think that to be a good student is to practice this sort of visible equanimity all the time, to be really kind of on an even keel all the time and not get knocked off our seat. Um, but I believe there's a way that you could be solidly on your seat while you're screaming or crying or angry. There's an internal composure that we don't have to lose, but to pretend that we're not feeling our feelings. Yeah. Well, the self does not want to be extinguished. We go through that every damn day, don't we? You know, the, the, the self, that, co that sort of loosely cohered matrix we call the self, does not want to change. But the body as an organic thing, all organic substances resist death. Even a, even a single cell moves away from a poison. Everything in our body is designed to continue to live. And that's the purpose of the body, is to continue reproducing itself. So it's as simple as an adrenaline reaction, but it all happens so fast that you go from zero to 60 
You know, when you step off that curb and you suddenly realize the bus is right there, what happens? Your body, a huge flash goes through your body and it is, I don't want to die. So can we, can we be conscious of that physical reaction and not get lost in it? In a way, it's just a bigger version of I'm having a fight with somebody. Can we not get lost in the anger? Can we not get lost in the tears? But I want to say that it's, it's not only okay to have them. Don't pretend you don't, you know. I don't want to be a person who can't, who doesn't cry. I don't want to be a person who never feels moved by the circumstances. And I do see people trying to make their practice be about coming tighter and tighter down into a very controlled or composed state. Um, and I think of it as walking so carefully that you never, you never fall down, but you also never take a natural step. So um, there's, a, there's a spontaneity and an authenticity that, that we need to cultivate as well. Yeah. You introduced a quote just now, which I will call as uh, die now so you don't have to be busy dying later. No, no, it's if you die once, meaning if you experience the dropping of the self, then you never die again. And what he's saying is that if you, if you truly experience the impermanence of the self, the actual death of the body loses some of its power. So my question is, is this an exercise you've ever encouraged someone in their final days to take part in? And we just had an exercise at the very beginning of this talk. So how, how do you bring this into the bed again? You, you can't make a person drop the self. <laughs> you just, you know, it's not, it's not something that, that you can lead the horse to, right? I know. You know. Um, <laughs> we don't want to go off too far into this. <laughs> I'm not prepared for that. But, um, but if you experience, if you allow yourself to experience impermanence, inside, you know, that I too am impermanent and really work at believing that, if you really feel that, there is a way that as the body begins to decline, there is some of that heat goes away. So I know this sounds a little weird, but I'm saying, yes, I am afraid to die. I have some resistance to dying, but I'm also really curious and really open to it. And one thing I'm open to is that it's going to be scary. Does that make sense? So um, the Zen moment is not, I'm not afraid to die. It's this moment. That's all we're working on is the reality of this moment. And sometimes this moment is a moment of tears. And sometimes this moment is a moment of anger or resistance. My dear teacher said to me once, don't resist resistance. And I chewed on that for years. Um, I didn't like it at all. Um, I thought it was a very lousy answer. Um, <laughs> it was a very good answer. I don't know if that rings for any of you, but allow yourself to have resistance. Allow yourself to not like it. We're all the same, you know, yeah. Whether you're the caretaker, the loved one, the dying person, you're going to have some resistance to this. So don't resist your resistance. Notice it. Name it. So one thing that has always been, I have been caretaker more than once. One thing that's always upset me, you 
and the reason all these things is that they always like are or something like that. They make caretakers look like they're having the time of their life. <laughs> I didn't. Ah, no, no, no. Yeah. And there was a lot of my own anger that I didn't want to bring to that particular person. But that is the biggest resentment I've always had as being a caretaker is when I would see these ads and know what I was going through every day trying to maintain myself and not, right. not be angry at the person. Right. Well, and it's, you know, I said that there's this official government definition of a good death that includes that the family and the caregivers are, are on board with everything and are happy and are comfortable. Um, in order to achieve that, you're going to have to shove some square pegs into some round holes. It's not the way it really works. It's not what really happens. And so what, what can happen with hospices which, you know, like 90% of them are home hospices, so that's a, that's a whole problem set right there. But um, hospice case studies where things don't go according to plan tend to get shoved to the side. They're not statistically acceptable. So hospice can be great, and hospice can fail. Yeah. Well, twice I've been yeah. I I'm glad it worked for you. Um, yeah. It's just not a perfect system by any means. And one of the ways that it's not perfect is people don't realize that the family is expected to do the care. You know, people sign up for hospice and they think, oh, great, someone's going to come help me. And it turns out they're not going to come help you. There's a way that hospice has been sold to us as something that it is not. And so when a death doesn't go according to what's being sold, it can be put aside. So um, I want there to be room for everything. But like I said, you don't take all this to the bedside. Your resistance, your anxiety, your fears, your grief, if it's, if it's not your death, then you need to take care of that elsewhere. So sometimes I'm talking to the person who's dying, sometimes I'm talking to the person with, but we're all future corpses. That's We're all going to get a chance at this. Um, well, and that's, that's one of the things, you know, that my own, I'm, I have my resistance, but I also think it's going to be really interesting. I really do um, think it's going to be interesting, partly to see how this particular self-reliant, independent, stubborn person handles it. Will I have the grace to handle it, to handle being dependent, to accept conditions as they are? I don't know. It's going to be the, the test of my decades of practice. Um, my own teacher, who had 45 years of practice, died of a sudden heart attack. Died in open-heart CPR in the emergency room. <laughs> um, and so I've often thought, I wonder how much, how, how well he handled that. I wish I could have seen how well he handled that. My intuition is he probably did just fine. Um, but I don't know. But he had all he needed. I mean, he, did, he had everything that you could have in terms of tools for going into that situation. It's just a mystery how it went. So, Okay, so let's do, let's change gears a little bit. We're going to...
I want everybody to have a, an index card, and I'm going to pass around some pencils because people don't seem to carry pens with them anymore. Could you pass those out? If you have your own pen, feel free. I wanted you to each have 15 index cards, and then I realized I didn't want to spend that much money on index cards. So, um, so write small is the idea here. Okay, so if you've got a card and something to write with, you need to make a list. So you've got to write small because there's 15 items. Five people you care about. Only five. Five people you care about. See, life forces you to make choices. And then five things you like to do, five activities that you enjoy. And finally, five places you like to be. <laughs> so five people, five activities, five places. You need a pen? <coughs> Just about ready. You know, people are like, but I can't catch you. It's okay. It gets worse, don't worry. So I first I first learned to do this exercise when I was trained as an end-of-life education um, nurse, and it was a room of 250 total strangers. Um, so it was a good exercise in in honesty and intimacy. So please be honest. Don't don't answer the way you think your teacher wants you to answer or your next door neighbor wants you to answer. So so I'm gonna just tell you a little story. So it's real simple. You got cancer. You need surgery. 
cross off two activities and one person and one place. You have cancer, you need surgery, so you need to cross a few things off your list. Two activities, one person and one place. What are you willing to give up at this point? You're choosing. <clears throat> Two activities, one place, one person. Everybody's calculating in their heads. They're trying to hedge their bets already. I like this. <laughs> well, it gets more horrible because you need chemotherapy. So there goes another activity and one place. What? Wait a minute. The medications you're taking make you very fatigued. So cross off another person. You just can't keep another person. You just can't keep up. I see resistance in the room. I hear resistance. You know, you're doing pretty good. The chemotherapy worked. But after about six months, you know, the remission's over. I'm sorry. It's come back. Pick three more things on your list and cross them off. Whatever you want. And now you're in your last few months. So choose two more. <laughs> it's your choice at this point. You're down to only a few things, so choose two more. What's last? And, you know, I know you don't all know each other, but I would love to hear a little bit from people about what's left. One way to do this exercise is that every single thing has a card, and you put the cards in the middle, and then you turn them over and read. Um, and it, what's very interesting is there's a lot of similarity here on your lists. Is anybody willing to, to share a little bit about what was last, or how they made these choices? <laughs> you should have two things left. What what have you got left? So so I have my husband and location Hawaii. Okay, so Hawaii with Greg. 
Growing spiritually is it's kind of hard to describe, but you know, that may not be one we have to give up. So maybe we get to keep that one. So yeah, and then I thought I had three things left. Oh she cheated. But um, okay, so then I just not, then I just, then I just eliminated my husband. <laughs> Sometimes it's easier than you think, you know. So. Leaving me with my children. With your children, okay, at the end. So you gave up all your activities mm -hmm. and everybody else, your children. Okay. So, um, it, it was a, a blessing in disguise in a weird way because the activities that I chose were fundamental activities. I couldn't hear you. Mental activities rather than uh, physical ones. Uh huh. And and, and uh, that meant that I could potentially get a lot left. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I always put reading is always on my list, but and and I've known many people who just who love to read. They lived in stories and they had to give it up. They couldn't they couldn't focus even if someone read to them. They had to give up this thing that was just, you know, so dear, even though you think, well, it's not my body exactly. So but that can go too. So, yeah. Like you wanted both of those? Well, yeah. Well, does anybody else want to share? Anybody? Yeah. That you saved. So, oh, yeah. Right. What would, what is, what honestly are you feeling? So I know you have a, you have a new baby, so that's a tough one, but I have three kids and there's one that I could cross off <laughs> right now. I mean, it's just, to be honest, it's okay if he's not there. I'm all right. Um, my, my oldest, my oldest kid, he can, he can, it's okay. Um, <laughs> but did, did you did you hear the bargaining that was going on? And you, you felt it in yourself, and I could hear it right out loud. Well, wait a minute. How do I weigh this? Um, if I keep this, maybe, and maybe this is the thing that I can, I can hold on to. The bargaining is so deep and so intense. That's our resistance talking, is somehow I'm going to be able to make a deal with this. I'm like... Like thinking, well, if I choose reading, I'll probably be able to keep reading. Well, maybe I won't. Because the other thing here is that you don't get to choose. Here in this exercise, you get to choose. But in reality, you don't get to choose. 
this friend of mine who just had a life-altering surgery, she had her foot removed. She didn't get to choose that she lost a foot instead of a hand. She lost her foot. And all of a sudden, her life is completely different in a matter of a week. So we don't get to choose. Um, and it can happen all at once. The bargaining still goes on, though. And it's a useful exercise to think about. This, this connects with that ideal death. What do I really want at the end? What are my deepest values? And how much of it is what I think other people want me to say? What will Aunt Lucille think if I don't choose this? <laughs> what will my teacher think if I don't have Zazen at the top of the list? <laughs> how many people had Zazen at the top of their list? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to say. <laughs> but it's okay if it's ice cream. That's okay, too. Because that is that is what Zazen is all about. It's this moment. Meet this moment. This reality as it is, regardless of what other people think. The, one, the thing about our own death is it's not just that we're all going to get to do it. We don't get to practice. Nobody gets to do it for us. And one of the beautiful things that you get from working with dying people is you can see a person turn a corner where they just don't care anymore what you think about their death and their choices. There's an incredible letting go that happens toward the end where a person really lets go of their attachments, including their children, including their most beloved activities, including the place they love more than anything else. It's just not part of their life anymore. So from this perspective, it's very hard to imagine not having your child with you. But there, if you imagine that we're walking down a road together, dying is a point where the path converges, diverges. And that dying person, there's a point where they're just walking down a different path. And all the rest of us are watching them walk away. At that point, Children don't matter. Reading doesn't matter. What your teacher thinks doesn't matter. And that's why when, when if you go into a room with a dying person and they're very, they're quiet, they seem to be unconscious, they seem not to be responding, I always assume they're just really busy. It's a very busy time. There's a lot to do. And we may call it unconsciousness, but I want to treat it as deep attention. Learning how universal that sentiment is about at some point children not being important on that path of dying. Is it just a matter of at some point someone's essentially unconscious or well you know, see your, your work? Culturally, it, you know, it just ranges all over the place. I, I always feel sorry for the little old Chinese guys. Um, because they have to be surrounded by gigantic families and, and you know, there always have to be tons of people in the room. And, and it may be that that particular individual doesn't really want that, but it's culturally normative. So to some degree, you know, it's, it's okay. But I, there's tons of cultural beliefs about this. And there is a, there's a, a movement called No One Dies Alone. Have you heard about that? Um, it's a nice sentiment, no one dies alone, is about volunteers for people who don't have family, who live alone, who are maybe really lonely and, and isolated. Um, and I've been often asked, what should I do if I'm a person who lives alone and I'm afraid 
that I'll die and not be found or that nobody will come when I need help, you know. So no one dies alone. It's a nice idea, but everybody dies alone. And some people only die when they're literally alone. So we have to give, we have to make room for that. Um, I always want to be, and as caregivers, I'd encourage you to be willing to find a gentle way to invite people out of the room when death is near and let the dying person have solitude. Um, just give them the opportunity. I don't, I can't tell you how common it is for a person to die in the one moment when someone goes to the bathroom or goes out to get clean sheets. They'll, they've been with people for five straight days, and in that two-minute period, they, they check out. That's how my mother, my mother died, only when we finally drug my father out of the room, because he kept saying, don't die, Pat, don't die, please don't die. And she was trying really hard to die, and he just kept hovering over her. It took about a minute and a half after he left the room. And I, I swear she was like, thank you. <laughs> I, can, I can go. So we want to do both. You know, what is, what is culturally normative and desirable for that person? Um, and what honors the fact that this is an act of supreme intimacy and solitude? Um, we can provide both. There are gentle ways to encourage people to take a break. You, you had it. Did you get your question? So, yeah, okay. Anything else from that exercise? You've probably all heard that the last sense to go is hearing. That's like, you know, a common common knowledge. Well, is it really true? It is actually true. Um, tests that when a person is declared brain dead, they do tests on various nerves. And tests on the nerves of hearing show that they last longer than everything else. We have every reason to believe that people do hear us, even if they are not responsive even if they don't appear conscious. We, it's such a mystery. I love the mystery of it all, that we don't know what is understood or what is, what is, what is taken in. But I've seen that happen, where somebody's in terminal agitation will suddenly settle um, with a prayer, with a song, or with just the presence of a person. Um, there's physical agitation that's just biochemical and, and um, really not in anybody's control. And then there's this kind of psychological agitation. Um, one of the, one of the um, images that I like, I can't remember who, I think it was Ira Bayok who had this, that it's like, um, 
it's like labor pains or a cocoon bursting open. That of course it's violent at times. Of course it's it's really hard work, and it might look really wild. It's, this is a major transition. So why would we expect it always to be a quiet, peaceful moment any more than birth is? I had I saw some hands over here. You and then you. Uh, yeah. So uh, in in this exercise, which was really interesting, of course, you and my husband Greg is going to be the last man standing. And then the other two, then the other one was a choice between reading, which was my what I'd written, and a wife, which we have a real close relationship with. And so I went for sort of the visceral, um, experiential in Hawaii. And, and I feel like nature is an ensemble mm -hmm. in many respects. And, and I wanted that feeling as opposed to something more right. cerebral. Right, right. So do you think location is more important than activity, or is that all? <laughs> we got a, one more exercise to do here. I'll get to that. <laughs> you had your hand up. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm just more involved with that being And yet, and yet at that moment, there will be a moment when you leave your friends. There's just going to be a moment when you are gone from them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sort of talking about corporately. Yeah. Yeah. Why do we do what? Why do we die? Not really. Why is it so expensive? Why is it so important? Huh? You know, all I can say is that there really there is a huge variety of rituals and responses to the dying and the dead around the world. Just about anything you can think of to do with dead bodies, some group of people has done with dead bodies. But there isn't any group that hasn't paid attention to it. It's, it's, there's never been a time in human history or a place in human culture where death was not significant, important. Um, if we're going to talk about dependent origination, that's another topic. So. We'll set that aside. Why do we die? But why do we care? Um, you know, for me, that's a self-evident equation. Um, it's important because it's a transformation into something that I don't entirely understand. And I want to be ready for it. Um, 
And, you know, we can talk for hours about what we think happens after that moment. But all I want to talk about tonight is getting to that moment and, and getting through that moment. So because the, the other side of it is a whole other topic. I have my beliefs, you have your beliefs, but we still all have to get to that moment. How many of you have been with somebody at the moment they die? There's something that happens, isn't it? It's not just that someone stops breathing. It's the hair on the back of my neck stands up. It's, and do you notice that the face changes instantaneously? The face is almost like a completely new face because from the moment of conception, there's muscle tension and there's electrical impulses and there's pheromones and there's chemical interactions. And suddenly there's a moment when all of that is gone and the face with no tension is a different face. The face with no electricity, the skin without galvanic impulse, it's different. That very moment, the body feels different, the face looks different, the room feels different. I don't know what it is, but it feels really important. It's too. like instantaneous, too. What? It's so instantaneous. The person is talking. Yeah. It's just like that. What do you mean by ultimate? The best, a good death, you mean? Is dying in your sleep? <laughs> the chicken's way. So how many of you in your ideal death was that part of it? I just die in my sleep. Okay. How many of you were alone in your ideal death? Ooh, a couple, so several people were alone. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm going to read a little something about attention and the way our attention gets focused at that moment. And then we're going to do one quick exercise and that'll kind of be coming to the end here. A dying person's attention turns toward a place we do not see and that they cannot explain. They are done with the business of the living and more or less finished with us. Now they are not a mother or a plumber or a friend. Now they are entirely a dying person and the world begins to shine. In spite of going hours without speaking, he is busy. He may not have the energy to talk because he is waiting for something and that takes everything he has left. Laugh, laugh and sing. The last kiss, the last dream, the last joke to tell. I have been telling you all the many things we might say and shouldn't, but there are things to say as the end is coming. I love you. I hope the best for you. We will be all right. Then we are listening again. We are returning to stillness and to hearing what is said without words. Most of us are not used to silence. It takes getting used to. And because we aren't used to silence, we don't understand how to be in it, 
how full it is. We may struggle against it, but silence is part of this world now. Silence is attention. Attention on this right here, right now. Attention on the hand against the sheet, the texture of the cotton, the cool cotton, the hand rising to take a cup, the hard, warm curve of the cup, the steam, the heat, the sensation of the bending tendon in the hand, the scratch of a nail along the bed cover, inhalation, exhalation, all this in silence, filled with the music between words, the music of the spheres, the faint vibration of breath and muscle and time. So let's just take a, a few minutes. I like that the, the bird song of New York <laughs> that I always hear, the endless sirens of New York, um, are a nice accompaniment to this. Um, so we talked a little bit about what our ideal death would be. So go back and revisit that for just a moment. Because I, I'm afraid I have to tell you that there's actually a meteor coming. And it's going to hit in about two minutes. So you're not going to get that death. This is it. This room. These people. Everybody right here. We're it. So take a minute. I'll tell you when it's time. Take a minute and do whatever you want to do. So that it's coming, there's just thirty more seconds. <laughs> I want to be alone. We say all will be well and all manner of things will be well. How did that feel? 
Why don't we feel like that all the time? It's true. It's always true. This is this is all we have. So I mean, I don't know that we can always feel this way. We'd probably die from it. But um, yeah. <laughs> That the, the other part of it, I mean, it's so beautiful to be living in here, and, uh, but, um, <laughs> but, but, um, but it's, just, it's like a reminder of what it really should be, because the first thought I had was, um, some regrets that I had, and I will know, I thought of how far away two people were that I would want to have done something, and I just thought, that's how my life is every day. be very grateful if I was in my sangha when that happened, but you might be at a bus stop. How many people felt the urge to go be in a corner by themselves? I mean, there was a lot of conviviality, but my, my feeling is, yeah, I need these two minutes to myself. So, yeah. And I probably feel the same way at the bus stop. But I think that the takeaway has to be that we have, we have all these ideas about what a death is like, what our death is like, what our loved one's death will be like, and what a good death is, and in the end, it's not going to be up to us. We actually don't get to choose. We actually don't have any control. There's a point where the most important quality of dying is to have no control. Um, She developed Alzheimer's, and um, I remember watching a video that was put on YouTube four years ago. So she was dying, I guess, well, she wasn't quite dying, but she was sitting in bed, and she had Alzheimer's, and someone had given her a bowl of ice cream, and it was a video of just her eating the ice cream with this smile on her face, and I kept wondering, and I think about it a lot, I keep thinking, you know, she did all that work. Then she gets Alzheimer's, and I couldn't, it's like, so was she like just there with the ice cream, eating the ice cream, or was she completely out of it and just eating something cold? And then in a way, I guess. Does it matter? Yeah. I know, but yeah, it's just, it's not like exciting. 
Well, and, and in our ideal death, for the most part, we all imagine that we're awake for it, right? right. Either yeah, we right. either we die in our sleep or we're going to be consciously, and I always, that's my ideal death is, I'm going to see it coming. I'm going to go forward with curiosity and wonder and enter the Bardo realms, right? I'm very likely to be unconscious for five or six days before that happens. Um, and I don't know whether I'll know what's happening or not. Um, I mean, part of the, the Tibetan visualizations that, that people go through in that form of practice is to learn to recognize it when it comes because the assumption is that people are very confused at the moment of death. And I don't know if you guys use exhortations here. We use some traditional, very old exhortations for the dying and the dead. And the primary message for the first, the day of the death and the moment of death is pay attention, you died. You need, you know, this, your body is changed. Now you need to go forward and then a description of what people are seeing because I think the unwinding of the skandhas is probably a pretty active and confusing experience to have you to have these things that we have had cohered our whole lives come apart. So we have all these fantasies about it. You uh, mentioned a couple times you don't have a choice, but I'm sure some of your patients are going to kill themselves. So how do you kill them? Um, I, I'm completely in favor of assisted death as a legal option. I live in the state, Oregon, that was the first in the, actually the first in the world to really make it legal the way it is. Um, and I think it should be an option for everybody. Um, I don't think of it as suicide at all. Um, oh yeah. Um, surprisingly few. Um, about a third of the people who get the prescription never use it, but they say they're very comforted by having it. Um, there's a lot of restrictions on it. Canada just passed a law which has a very interesting restriction, which is you you get the prescription and then you're not allowed to take it until you, again, at the very last moment, you have to sign a paper and say that you want to do it. So people with people with dementia can't do it. People with, you know, and in Oregon, because you have to take it yourself, people with ALS have to do it before they really want to because they won't be able to give it to themselves at a certain point. So, of course, there's also a lot of workarounds <laughs> that people come up with. Um, about 1,700 people in Oregon have died that way in, in, in many years. It's not a huge number. You know, there was a lot of prediction about terrible slippery slope and, you know, we'd be killing off the disabled. And that's not, it's proven to be mostly white people with four-year college educations and almost, you know, cancer, ALS, and um, a few other things. Lung disease is the third. So. so it's proven to be a perfectly, I think, reasonable law. But, yes, you can choose. And there are people who have chosen the moment of their death because they want to be awake for it. And that's a very common motivation that people have is I know I'm going to slip into unconsciousness and I want to face it. So I'm going to choose it. That kind of um, brings up, I, mean, uh, I guess, question um, to you know, pharmacology um, and being awake, right? Um, so I was in the room with um, an alcoholic who was dying and um, I thought it was interesting sort of issues of um, confusion versus attention of this person being present. And to see all the different values that that, that possibility.
responsibility brings out the loved ones and the relationship of the loved ones to the alcoholism, which is itself rather valid. So I was kind of wondering, I mean, I'm actually a new practitioner, but I was wondering, um, you know, what are the attitudes that you've seen, um, or maybe the fears that you've felt about um, the issues of numbness and being present during that? I, issues of I what? Numbness or um, being present versus. Because it seems to be a debate about whether um, a, a consciousness, a gift of our consciousness, was a compassionate gift or was it, it was a decision that was really resistance. I think what I'd say is that you die the way you lived, and and there are habits of mind and body that are there with you at the end, and it's one reason we do the practice we do of attention and presence to literally cultivate that as a habit, to cultivate the willingness to accept things as they are, to cultivate the willingness to be clear and not numbed, not buffered. But many people get to the end of their life lost in that habit. And I'm sure there is a quality there for them of that. You know, the, the traditional teachings about that moment of the skandhas coming apart is not just that it's very confusing, but that it's fraught with, with things to be afraid of and things to be tempted by. Um, and all of which are trying to pull you back into your embodied state. To some way get away from this opening, this clarity, this, this spaciousness that is actually very frightening to a lot of people. We're here trying to find our way to it, but many people find experiences of spaciousness very frightening. Um, so I think there is a way to be with a dying person. I've rarely seen a person who was actually scared at death, but I've seen plenty of people who were scared pretty close to it. Um, and there's a way to be with them where you can kind of hold them closer rather than encourage that spaciousness, but to bring it in to intimacy instead. That's a gift. I saw some hands. One, two, three. Kind of related to that, was one of the many things that was is confusing to me in the hospital hospice setting was the uh, relationship of, of morphine or sedation in in the care and the balance between the caregiver's comfort and what the and what the dying person really needs, and I. It's just very confusing to me. Mm -hmm. So um, I love morphine. I think morphine is a great gift to the world, and um, I'm not afraid of it at all. Uh, but you know, in I have done I, in the back of the book, there's a four-page my death plan. You know, and I've done my advanced directives and all that, and I've written lots of pages about what I want, and one of them is. That question, do you want, can you manage moderate pain if it's the only way to stay awake? Or do you want your pain controlled even if it means you're going to go to sleep? That's a question everybody should be prepared to answer. Um, and if you're the caregiver for somebody else, figure out what you think would be best for them. You know, what would they want? What would your mother want? Would she want to be awake for it or not have the pain? Because that is a choice that we sometimes have to make. Um, sleep versus comfort. But mo you know, severe pain can, all, can be controlled. 
it is a falsehood to, to worry about out-of-control pain. It's extremely rare. But to control pain does sometimes require sleepiness. Now that drowsiness does pass, so, so it's one reason we shouldn't be afraid of morphine. We should start it early, not late. People need to become tolerant of it so that, that some of that sedation passes. And then it's our friend at the end. The thing that gets me, and here we're going to get a little clinical, is noisy breathing. You've all heard noisy breathing at the end of life. It's a normal part of dying. It is the hardest thing for families to hear. They hate that noisy, grunting, gurgly breathing. And we actually, it is con conventional medicine to treat the family. That's how it's called. That's how it's, you know, we will, we will give this person a drug that has a lot of bad side effects in order to treat the family. And I'm, I don't hesitate to protest that. Um, the drugs that will dry up secretions cause delirium, restlessness, and dry mouth, and confusion, and hallucinations. Why would we want to do that to a person who's dying? So I consider one of my responsibilities at the deathbed is to, is to be a witness for the normal. And you can all do that. You can all say, oh, yeah. You know, so one of the things I do at a bedside is I'll say, oh, well, I see a, very, a person who's very comfortable. I can hear them breathing, but that's just because their throat is relaxed, you know. Um, to find gentle ways to say, oh, this is normal. Yeah, this is, I've seen this before. This is very fine. Um, this person looks really comfortable to me. And, and we can prepare people for it before it happens as well. Um, one thing you can really always do is be that witness for how people die and let people know. So I don't want to ever treat a family. I want to, I want to treat the person who's dying. Um, anyway, I'm kind of an evangelical about not giving atropine or scopolamine. I just don't like those drugs. I've seen them really bother people. So the morphine, that's cool. You know, um, Ross Chast has this great cartoon of a, a person sitting up in a four-poster bed. She calls it extreme palliative care. And... It goes on for a while, but she says, why not lots of ice cream and some heroin? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe morphine, but um, yeah. Why are we afraid of, of comfort and joy in these moments? I see we have one minute. Is there, there was a question. I've seen five people die, and I'm not my mother did something like that. I mean, they kept on saying she had a really good death, and she did. And I know she did. And I know I provided that for her. She died in my home. But right before she was going to die, she was like forcing herself to stay up. And they said she's waiting for somebody. And then uh, when, so, so everybody called her. And she got calmer. And then the nurse said to me, she's going to die soon. And I panicked. I really can. I started holding her face and kissing her. And this is how I knew she was really my mother in that sense. I just, I, I kissed her and I kept saying, Are you in pain? Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you in pain? Does anyone ever need pain? And she mouthed the words, I'm okay. And then she died. And I really felt she was talking to me. Mm -hmm. She was saying, you'll be all right. Right, but I, 
And I think it's one reason sometimes people die alone is they are sparing somebody. They, they are consciously trying to, there's a generosity in them to spare a person that sight. I don't know. So, uh, uh, one more question. for a, a friend of our family in our living room and um, I talk about him in the book because he had a lovely death and I, I just said which how are you and he he just said fantastic <laughs> and that was his last word and I thought later I thought oh that was his last word fantastic yeah. great 